Well, one of my favorite books is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. Now, for those of you who don't know, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy are siblings sent to live with an eccentric professor. Lucy explores the house, and she finds a wardrobe that leads her into a magical world called Narnia, where she encounters a fawn who explains to her that an evil white witch has enchanted the entire world. Later, Edmund also finds his way to Narnia, only he doesn't meet the fawn who's friendly, but instead the white witch herself who introduces herself as the queen of Narnia and then proceeds to give Edmund whatever he wants, including an unlimited supply, if you remember, of Turkish delight. So very quickly, this simple dessert becomes an insatiable addiction for Edmund. It becomes an idol that he has to have. Now be clear, an idol by definition is something you'll sin to get or sin if you don't. So Edmund has to have it. His Turkish delight can't live without it. So the witch uses Edmund's greed and gluttony, his idol, to persuade him to bring his siblings back to Narnia so she can capture them and kill them. But as I said, the title of the book is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So we're introduced to the wardrobe, chapter 1, then we're introduced to the witch, chapter 2, but Aslan, the lion, isn't even hinted at until we get to chapter 7. Chapter 8, he's finally described as the king of Narnia. So Aslan's the king. Now, ultimately, all the children find their way to Narnia with a plan to meet this infamous lion, this king, when suddenly Edmund disappears. He takes off on his own, searching for the white witch in order to warn her that Aslan's back. Why does he do that? Well, because Edmund's got an idol Turkish delight, so he's willing to sin to get it, betraying not only the king of Narnia, but his own siblings. Now the glory of Aslan, this wonderful, benevolent, gracious king, is he promises to do all that he can to save Edmund, the one who betrayed him and his siblings. So Aslan makes a deal with the white witch. Namely, offering his own life for Edmund's life. So his life as a substitute for Edmund's life so that Edmund might live. Now, what's the connection to Exodus 32? Well, there are two prominent themes in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The first is idolatry. I mean, Edmund is absolutely consumed by this insatiable desire for Turkish delight. He has to have it, can't live without it, and is happy to sin in order to get it. Idolatry. The second is intercession. So the fact that Aslan lays down his life, gives up his life, offers his life as a substitutionary atonement in order to save Edmund. Idolatry and intercession. Both of those themes are all over our passage this morning. So if you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles with me and open them to Exodus 32. 
Exodus 32. I also want to encourage you to grab my outline, title of my sermon, Idolatry and Intercession. While you're turning, let me just remind you of where we're at in the book of Exodus, really to highlight what's going to happen this morning. Exodus chapter 1 to 15 highlights, I hope you remember this, that God is a God who saves. But just think about those details. Chapter 1, the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, dominated and oppressed without any chance of freedom until God reveals himself. Chapter 3, empowers Moses, chapters 4 and 5, unleashes nine plagues, chapters 6 to 10, with the last plague, chapter 11 and 12, being the death of the Passover lamb, who dies, by the way, as a substitute so that Israel might live. So God is the God who saves. Be clear. God saved Israel so that they might be a people who trust God's provision, obey God's law, and dwell in God's presence. Now, it's really helpful for you to know, to remember, as we start Exodus 32, that we are literally only three months from Israel's salvation, the crossing of the Red Sea. That only happened 90 days ago. Yet here we are with number one, Israel's idolatry A, the golden calf. Follow along as I read verses 1 to 10. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, notice the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. So apparently Moses saved Israel now and not God. This Moses, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he, Aaron, received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast. To who? To the Lord. To Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Play here probably has connotations to sexual activity. Verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So just 90 days since God's glorious salvation 
And here we are. Israel is making a golden calf. What's the motivation? Well, verse 1 says Moses was delayed. So Moses is gone 40 days, 40 nights. Where is he? He's up on the mountain. And they're terrified they've been deserted. But is that really true? I mean, they've got evidence all around them that God is still caring for his people. For example, what would be good examples? Oh, I don't know. How about manna every single morning? That's still happening. How about thunder and lightning? They're at the base of Mount Sinai. Thunder and lightning. Big massive cloud on the mountain. They have evidence all over the place that God is present and still caring for his people. And yet the people command, make us gods who shall go before us. So let's get going. Let's get off to the promised land. And apparently they are happy to go now without God. That's helpful to keep track of. They're happy to go without God. God will give them over to their desires and give them what they want. But did you notice how God's totally aware of everything that's going on? I mean, verse 7, God says, Go down, Moses, for your people have corrupted themselves. So he knows exactly what the people are claiming, and he knows just how quickly they've abandoned him. But he also knows, as you read carefully, exactly what Aaron said. Verse 4, Aaron says, these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Then God quotes Aaron in verse 8, these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So even though God's not there or doesn't appear to be there, he sees and he knows all things. Now just think about that for a moment. Because the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. They're not different gods. So that means that God sees all that you do. And God knows all that you say, both good and bad. Psalm 139 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, and when I rise up, you know my thoughts from afar. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. You even know the words on my tongue before I speak them. Verse 4, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Which means God knows every single idol in our hearts. He knows all the golden calves, and he knows every Turkish delight. He's intimately acquainted with all your ways, and he will hold you accountable. Well, let me ask this question. B, which of God's commandments did Israel actually break? Well, I would suggest that they broke the first three. So commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Stated positively, positively, that means worship God exclusively, which they're obviously not doing, right? Verse two, the people say, make us gods who shall go before us. Verse six, they rose up early in the morning. They offered burnt offerings to what? To the golden calf. So they're not worshiping God exclusively, which means they're breaking the first commandment. 
But they're also breaking the second commandment. Commandment number two says, you shall not make for yourself any graven images. So don't just worship God exclusively, worship God rightly. Because any graven image, like a golden calf, dishonors God because it obscures God's glory. So they're claiming here that this golden calf represents Yahweh. Look at verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to who? To the Lord. To Yahweh. So the golden calf represents Yahweh. Now, quick question, why a golden calf? Why not a golden eagle or a golden squirrel? Why not a golden chicken? Well, Israel is currently located between Egypt and Canaan. One of the major gods of Egypt was the bull god Apis, and one of the major gods of Canaan was the bull god El. So apparently bull worship was the rage. But notice how Aaron doesn't make a golden bull, he makes a golden calf. Jen Wilkins explains, when Aaron conceives of Yahweh in his own imagination, he creates a non-threatening, approachable, mild version of the gods in their surrounding nation. So Aaron creates a golden calf as an image of the one true God of the Bible, Yahweh. So not a lesser God or a different God, but they made an image of God. Which, by the way, lies so badly about who God really is. I mean, the golden calf is small. God is infinite. The golden calf is solid. God's spirit. The golden calf is in one place. God is in every place. The golden calf is of limited Value, God's of infinite value. It has no power. God's all powerful. It's destructible. God's indestructible. It is blind and mute and deaf and dumb. God sees. He hears. He speaks. And God has all wisdom. The golden calf is created. God is the creator. The golden calf is dead. God is alive. Do you hear what I'm saying? They're clearly breaking the first commandment, but they're also clearly breaking the second commandment, not worshiping God exclusively and not worshiping God rightly. But they're also breaking the third commandment because they're ascribing to what I hope you now see is a worthless piece of junk. Yet they call it Yahweh. So they're taking the Lord's name in vain. Now you might ask, is this really all that bad? I mean, in the grand scheme of life, it's just a golden calf. Is that really that big of a deal? My answer is yes. It really is that big of a deal. Verse 7 uses the language of corruption. That's important. That that word is a connection back to Genesis chapter 6, right before the universal flood when everybody dies. Verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So their sin here, just like the flood, is deserving of universal destruction. 
God wiping them out in sea, a horrific judgment. Now, a good way to think about this is to use the analogy of a marriage, right? I mean, if you remember back to Exodus 24 and the covenant that took place between God and his people, that was very much like a wedding ceremony. So it's a a covenant promise that is taking place between God and the nation of Israel, with Israel declaring to God that, that all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. So in less than 40 days, Israel is forsaking that promise and is running now after other lovers. Analogy, that would be like a wife cheating on her husband while they're still on the honeymoon. So God's wrath is totally understandable. That's why he says, verse 10, Now, therefore, let me alone, let my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you, Moses. Meaning all the other people are dead, just like the flood, and God starts all over again with a new Noah, namely Moses. That's the horrible judgment God's talking about here, which also serves as an invitation for Moses to intercede. So if you would, follow along as I read verses 11 to 14. Number 2a, Moses' intercession with God. Verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Verse 14, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now, right away, let me deal with the question that might be in your mind, does God really change his mind? I mean, that's certainly what it sounds like when we look at verse 14, that God relented. So does God really change his mind? My answer to that would be no. Because God's the same yesterday, today, and forever, all-knowing, all-powerful, and God is immutable. He's unchanging. So then, how do I explain verse 14? Well, I would suggest Moses uses anthropomorphic language. That's a big word. What does that mean? Anthropomorphic language means language of humanity to describe God's divinity, Use human language so that we might understand God. So he relented from what appeared to be his original plan, but the truth is the final plan was God's plan all along. So then why would he do that? Well, because God wants us to understand the idea of intercession. He wants us to understand one person standing in the place of the many. He wants us to get a hold of interceding, pleading, and sacrificing so that we can better understand the Lord Jesus. 
who he is and what he accomplished on the cross, living our life, dying our death, and interceding for us. That's what's going on here. God purposely, sovereignly planning so that we can rightly understand intercession with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how Moses does it. He makes three very specific arguments. Number one, these are your people. Verse 11, oh Lord, why does your wrath burn against your people? They're, they're your people. You're the one who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, right? Your mighty hand, your power at work in your people. These are your people. Number two, this is your reputation. Verse 12, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did God bring them out just to kill them? See, Moses is arguing the Egyptians are going to totally misinterpret what you're doing here, Lord. So rather than seeing you as a God who is merciful and kind, gracious and long-suffering, they're going to claim that you're wicked and evil. These are your people. This is your reputation. Number three, this is your promise. Verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to whom you promised, I will multiply your offspring and I will give you this land. So Moses pleads the promises of God, and he calls God to be faithful, which, of course, God always is, so God relents. But again, don't misunderstand what's going on here. God's, God's not sitting here listening to Moses thinking, wow, Moses, that is a great point. I had not thought about that. God's not like that. Instead, the whole point, even in the arguments, is to teach us that God is a God who cares for his people, that God is a God who cares about his own glory, that God is a God who will be faithful to his promises. And he cares that we rightly understand that we're idolaters, just like the Israelites who have sinned badly, rightly deserve God's wrath, and desperately need a man to intercede on our behalf so that God's anger can be assuaged and we can be in a right relationship with him. So that's A, Moses' intercession with God. Now B, Moses' intercession with Israel. Verse 15, then Moses turned and went down from the mountain. So he was up on the mountain. Now he actually is going down the mountain. Goes down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was of God engraved on the tablets. Just going to tell you right now, I'm not going to comment on the tablets. I can't cover everything this morning. You're going to be disappointed. Every one of you is going to say, what about the tablets? What about the tablets? Both sides? What do you think was on the tablets? No comment right now. Okay, here we go. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. Verse 19. And as soon as he, Moses, came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and he burned it with fire. And he ground it to powder. And he scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Number one. Moses confronts the situation. So be clear. Moses was on the mountain 40 days, 40 nights. 
Here he is. Now he's coming down the mountain. He's, he's heard about what's going on from God, but now he's coming down the mountain and he's coming down. As he's coming down with Joshua, they hear this big, massive commotion. I mean, the commotion is, is so loud that Joshua thinks that Israel is being invaded and he's trying to debate, are they, they winning or are they losing? Moses clarifies, that's not the sound of war. That's the sound of a party. So Israel's singing and dancing, shouting and doing who knows what else. But as soon as Moses sees it, the golden calf, he comes unglued. Now, what's awesome here is that Moses' reaction matches God's reaction, which is very purposeful. Because in your mind's eye, right, right, you might envision Moses as being in an all-out, all-consuming, out-of-control fit of rage. Like a dad coming home unexpectedly. Who catches his kids having a beer fest with girls in the hot tub, keg on the back deck, and then totally losing control and start throwing people out of his house? But that's not what's going on. That probably tells you more about you (laughs) or your experiences, right? But that's not what's going on. No, no. Moses' anger is a righteous anger. That's why it's described as identical to God's anger. God's anger burned hot, verse 10, and Moses' anger burns hot, verse 19. Then you might ask me, why does he break the two tablets then? Because that's what's going on between God and the people. Meaning God's people broke God's covenant, and therefore their relationship, if you will, is shattered. So the breaking of the tablets is symbolic to what's going on in their relationship. But Moses does something else, doesn't he? He takes the golden calf, he burns it with fire, then he grinds it, grounds it down to powder, then he, then he scatters it in water, and he makes the people drink it. That seems a little bit excessive, doesn't it? No. I don't think so. I don't think this is excessive at all. Moses is showing Israel that idols are not to be managed. They're to be destroyed. Immediately. Not to be messed around with. Idols are not to be managed. They're to be destroyed. So we're not to be playing around with them. Like a cat and a mouse, but killed. Like a lion devouring its prey. So Moses puts the crushed golden calf powder into water and then he makes them drink it. Why does he do that? So that it can be digested. And it can be passed along as waste. So a pretty graphic picture of what this golden calf is worth. Essentially, it's a load of crap. That's what it is. So Moses, number one, confronts the situation. Number two, confronts the leader. Verse 21, Moses said to Aaron, what do this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Verse 22, here we go. Aaron says, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, they are set on evil. For they said to me, make 
us gods who shall go up before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into fire. And out came this calf. Now, I confess when I read this, I think to myself, this is absolutely ridiculous, right? right? Aaron is telling the story in such a way that minimizes his responsibility. Verse 22, you know these people, they're hell-bent on evil. So, so he starts out, number one argument, blaming the people. But then he moves very quickly to blaming Moses. Verse 23, for the people said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. Why? Because you, Moses, it's really your fault, Moses. Moses, you were nowhere to be found. Blame the people. Blame Moses. Then worst of all, he blames the fire. Verse 24, so I took the gold, threw it in the fire. Who would have known? No clue this was going to happen. This is incredible. Out comes this calf. Just for clarity, look back at verse 3. This is our perception of history. I hope you're feeling convicted. We all do this. We retell stories in such a way that we're a hero when really we're probably the villain. Verse 3, all the people took off their rings of gold and brought them to who? They brought them to Aaron. Notice the verbs. He received the gold, he fashioned a graving tool, and he made what? A golden calf. The fire didn't make the golden calf. Aaron made the golden calf calf. So Aaron is one big, fat, can't-help-himself blame shifter. Just like who? I know you're thinking I'm going to say you. (laughs) That's true. We'll get to that in a second, right? But just like who? Adam and Eve. Just like Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden. Don't you remember when God caught them in their sin? They did the exact same thing. They blame shifted. Adam blamed the serpent. I mean, Eve blamed the serpent. Adam blamed Eve. And then Adam has the audacity to blame God. This woman whom you gave to me, God, she made me do it. Let's pause. Great moment for application Do you recognize blame shifting is just as common for us as idolatry? Nobody wants to own up to their own sin. But Aaron here gives us a perfect example of what not to do when we're confronted with sin. When we sin, we should own it. Immediately. Just own it. Call a spade a spade. And don't use flowery language. Right? He's, you know, retelling the story. Anger is anger. Not frustration. Not irritated. Don't you have a spouse ever say to you, why are you angry? I'm not angry. I'm irritated. 
Oh, sorry about that. Why are you irritated? Angry. Why are you frustrated? Angry. Why don't we just call a spade a spade? Own it immediately. Call it what it is and confess it. When I say own it, I mean 100% own it. Not partial ownership, not I'm so sorry that you're mad about what I did. No, my fault. We shouldn't make excuses. We shouldn't justify it. We shouldn't blame it on others. And we shouldn't highlight the difficulty of our circumstances. Now, no doubt our circumstances are hard. No doubt these people were sinful. But circumstances don't make you sin. We sin because we choose to sin. And when we choose to sin, we should also choose to own it, to confess it, and to apologize for it. You're right, Moses, my fault. 100% my responsibility. I've sinned and done what is evil in God's sight. My fault. Moses, forgive me. Lord, forgive me. Own it, confess it, and apologize specifically for it. So at this point, Moses is having a pretty rough day, isn't he? Number one, confronts the situation. Number two, confronts the leader. But here's the hardest part. Number three, confronts the people. Verse 25, And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. All of the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Can you even imagine? The priests kill 3,000 men. Verse 27, thus says the Lord God of Israel, go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp and kill your brother, your companion, and your neighbor. What are we to make of this? Well, you have to read these words in context. Part of that context is that verse 27 comes after verse 26. So first, Moses pleads with the people. He he asks the question, who is on the Lord's side? And then he appeals to them, come to me. You have to understand that that is a call to repentance. 
And then, verse 27, Moses gives the instruction that whoever won't repent of their sin must be cut off. So 3,000 men die. Now, do they die because they're the only ones who have sinned? No. All the people have sinned. They die because they won't repent of their sin. They won't leave their idolatry behind. So they're unrepentant men who are choosing to continue in sin. So they must be cut off. Otherwise, Israel's existence as a nation is threatened. So this is judgment against unrepentant sin. But I would also suggest that it's grace. Moses doesn't call the righteous. Moses does not call the sinless. Moses does not call the morally clean. He calls those who make the decision to be on the Lord's side. So no matter how badly they've erred, or how deeply they've swam in the cesspool of sin, God's grace is offered. Verse 26, it is offered to absolutely everyone. All they have to do is take him up on it. Own their sin, repent of it, acknowledge God's authority, and commit to walk in righteousness for his name's sake. Now, by way of application... This is no different than church discipline. I mean, the church obviously doesn't have a physical sword, but the church does have a spiritual sword. So anyone in the church who's living in ongoing, unrepentant sin threatens the holiness and the purity of the church. The New Testament makes it clear that they're to be put out of the church. They're to be cut off in hopes that they'll see the severity of their sin and repent. Now, that might sound harsh to you this morning, but it's one of the things we're supposed to learn from this passage. What are we to learn? We're to learn just how serious sin really is, especially when it's left unchecked in the covenant community. Why is that? Because sin leads to death. James 1.15 says, Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. God will always judge sin. But God will also always offer grace. Here's the question. Whose side are you on? That's the question. Whose side are you on? Are you on the Lord's side this morning? Or are you on sin's side? I appeal to you, choose the day whom you will serve. You have a choice to make. If I choose sin, then I choose judgment and death. Or I can choose to be on the Lord's side. Salvation. And life. How does that happen? Through a mediator who offers his life full atonement for sin. Let's continue. Verse 30, intercession with God. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make notice atonement for your sin. 
So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Verse 33, but the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron made. See how clear that is, that Aaron made. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offering, to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you and will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Here's where they get what they wanted. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. This pause, can't help myself. So God the Father is not going to go up, but he's sending the angel. Isn't that glorious? There's your mediator. It's right there in the angel. So wonderful. Anyways, verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people, for if for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Oreb onward. Again, I just want to make sure you're clear on the progression. Moses starts on Mount Sinai, verses 1 to 14. He comes down to confront the situation, the leader and the people. That's verses 15 to 29. Now he's back up on the mountain and he's talking directly to God. And judgment for sin is abundantly clear. And it continues. I mean, 3,000 people are already dead. Moses, again, is interceding on behalf of the people. But God promises, verse 33, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book, meaning the book of life. So judgment continues. Part of that judgment is verse 35, God sending a plague. Part of that judgment is Exodus 33:3, God not dwelling in the midst of his people. Go to the promised land, but I will not go with you. So number one, the reality of judgment, which requires number two, the need for a mediator. If you would, let's zoom in on verses 30 to 32. Moses says, verse 30, perhaps I can make atonement for the people's sin. Verse 31, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will, Lord, forgive their sin. But if not, blot me out from your book. What exactly is Moses offering? He's offering his life for the people's life. He's offering his death for their death. He's offering to take their place, die their death, exchange his life for their life. Substitutionary atonement. Now, of course, the Lord refuses because Moses is a sinner just like the people. His life isn't good enough, therefore his death isn't sufficient. But here's the glory of the gospel. 
Jesus's life is and Jesus's death does. So like Moses, Jesus willingly offers his life for our life, his death for our death, which is sufficient, acceptable, and joyfully received by God. So he offers himself substitutionary atonement for all our sin. Just like the hymn says, guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. As we think about number three today's idolatry, and we shift to application, I want you to know that 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that all these things took place. All that took place in Exodus took place to serve as examples for us. In fact, Paul says, verse 7, don't be idolaters as they were for the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Direct reference to Exodus 32, 6. So what is Paul's advice? In summary, verse 14, he says, flee idolatry. So A, we must confront the idols in our own lives, and B, we must cling to Christ, our glorious mediator, whose substitutionary atonement is the only thing that will satisfy God's wrath against our sin. So A, confronting idols. Remember where we started this morning. The lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Edmund's obsession with Turkish delight. So what's an idol? It's something you sin to get or sin if you don't. All I want to do is just spend a few minutes thinking about some of the obvious idols in our own hearts. Obviously, I can't cover many. How about the love of money? When people say that you're a generous person, are you kind of person who's always counting your pennies? So you're happy when the stock market goes up and currently you're secretly depressed. That would highlight money as an idol. How about stuff? One pastor tells the story of how he walks to church every Sunday and he passes a neighbor who's on his knees washing the tires on his car with a toothbrush. So evident and obvious what that guy worships. But how about you? How do you do with stuff? Do you own your stuff? Or does your stuff own you? Meaning, are you willing to freely offer it to others? Hey, here's my stuff. I hope it's helpful to you. I hope it's a blessing to you. Or are you stingy about your stuff? Worried that others might break it. So you obsess over it, you focus on it, you're consumed by it. That would be an idol. How about popularity? Caring what people think of you. Here's one way to get after that idol in our current culture. How often do you check Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram? How often do you post? How often do you check who's commented on your post or shared it with others? Are you consumed by how many thumbs up you get from other people? That would highlight 
popularity as an idol. See, idols are anything we worship instead of the one true God. So they're anything we look to to find meaning and purpose and satisfaction apart from the Lord Jesus. So idols can be physical things like money or stuff, but they also can be intangible things like control or freedom or acceptance or popularity. Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that's what your God really is. What should we do to confront these idols in our hearts? Well, first of all, we should rip them out with all the passion and energy that we can muster. Idols are not to be managed. They're to be destroyed. Moses burned the golden calf. He ground it to powder. He made the Israelites drink it so that it ended up as waste. That's what we need to do with idols in our hearts. We need to rip them out, we need to ground them down, and we need to consider them as rubbish. Don't engage them, don't play with them, don't coddle them, and certainly don't think of them as no big deal or worship them with your time, your energy, or your affections. Confront your idols. Then be, cling to Christ. Every single one of us has sinned, is sinning, and will sin specifically with regard to idols. I hope and pray that's evident and obvious to you. But that means that every single one of us is in desperate need of a perfect substitute. And praise God that we have one. Through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus said to God, take my life so that they may live. So because of Christ, our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So to my non-Christian friend, let me just ask you as we close, do you realize that you are just like the Israelites in Exodus 32, building a golden calf? Or, Or maybe it's easier, do you realize that you're just like Edmund in the Chronicles of Narnia? You're sinning against king and country just to get a little bit more Turkish delight. And that you're in desperate need of Aslan, the king, the Lord Jesus, to die in your place as a substitute for your wicked idolatry so that you might be reconciled to him and in a right relationship for all eternity. Again, who are you going to choose this morning? Sin or salvation in Jesus? And to my Christian friends, let me just say, We need to see our idols for what they really are. Blind, mute, deaf, dumb, created things that are dead. So am I negative on everything? No. Enjoy those things. Be thankful for those things. Steward those things. But don't worship them. Worship Christ, your risen and reigning Savior, the one mediator between God and man who gave his life as a ransom so that we might have life. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, we're grateful for your word. What a picture of our orientation towards idols and how quickly we run to them. Father, I pray that we would also rejoice 
in the mediator that has come, the Lord Jesus, who lived a sinless life so that he would be an adequate substitute in his death for our sin. And Father, I pray that we would worship him above all other things. Do that good work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.